0: Welcome back dear listeners. I hope you're really enjoying this year so far because we are now officially halfway through. As always you can check out the worksheet and powerpoint that go with this lesson at our website evidenceforfaith.org. You can also help support this program and keep it free by donating at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. And with that let's jump into Jonah session five. Mm-hmm. So we'll open in prayer, and we'll get started with our lesson on Jonah tonight. This is lesson number five, lesson number five. So we're in chapter three, um, the very beginning of chapter three this week, and uh, we'll be starting there, but let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful weekend you've given us. Though the snow is melting, and it feels more like April than the middle of February, lord we still thank you and we thank you that you've given us the health i thank you that each person who is here tonight listening lord they don't have the flu they're here it's great and we thank you for our health we also thank you for just the love that you give us and and your 66 love letters of which jonah is one love this book this book on salvation and tonight, Lord, as we explore this again. It is your Holy Spirit that does the teaching, and we invite your Spirit, Lord, to just move among our minds and teach us things and, and just uh, help us to see things clearly as we explore this book, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we continue with Jonah, <clears throat> excuse me, a whale of a tail here. The, like I say, we're what we've done at this point now, <clears throat> bringing us up to speed, we have seen Jonah be given a commission by God, and he runs the other way. He tries running to Spain, Tarshish. Um, didn't go too well. He loses everything, we talked about last time, that he lost everything. Being swallowed by the fish, we often just focus upon at that aspect, that you know he uh, almost was killed, um, but miraculously survived. And in doing so, we often neglect that he has lost everything. Because he probably sold everything that he owned to go on this trip to get away from God. That wasn't a vacation. I don't think he planned on coming back. He was running away from God. He's not going to go back to the land of God there in where Israel is. So, he was probably going for good. Probably sold many of his things that he had there as he planned his trip. And what luggage he had on board the ship was thrown overboard by the sailors during the storm. Now, he finds himself inside a fish. After the fish, he is spit out onto the land and voila he is now has nothing he has lost it all so as we get into this now we pick up the story at this point And he's made vows when he was in the fish as he was praying a prayer of thanksgiving and he was praising God inside the fish. Seems like he really had a different turn of heart there. And now we pick up in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Let's take a look at this. And it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, We are going to focus a lot on this tonight and primarily Nineveh. We've talked a little bit about it in the past. I talked on the first lesson as an introduction, I gave you an idea of who the Assyrians were, because this is the capital of Assyria. I gave you an idea about the Assyrians, but we really haven't talked about this city. There's a lot of cities in Assyria. This was one of the capital cities. Later on, it becomes towards the end of the period. Uh, At the empire, the Assyrian empire. This was the main capital. Um, They had a couple of capitals throughout the time, but this was a major city as we're going to see. And like we said, he has lost everything. Now, when he gets spit out, we're not told where he's spit out. It just says in scripture that God uh, told the fish to spit him out on land. We don't know where he's at. Is he in Greece? Is he in Cyprus? Is he in Egypt? Is he on the north coast of Africa? I mean, he was going to Tarshish. He was going all the way across the Med. So, where in the world now did he end up? We are not told. We have no clue, really, where he's at. Most people think, well, he got spit out right back where he started, at Joppa. God doesn't tell us. We have no idea where he was. But there's a few things that we, we can sort of wonder now. Remember, he has lost everything he obviously just can't go walking 600 miles to Nineveh, if even if he landed at Yapa, to go all the way over there. He, he's got to have money to make a travel and stuff. So, if you read different commentaries, you'll see some different things on this. Did he, did he go back home to Gath, uh, Gath Hefer first? Back up, which way I told you, was up by Nazareth. Very close to where Nazareth, where Jesus was uh, going to be spending you know, a lot of his time up in Nazareth. Gath Hepper was only like a mile and a half from there. Did he go back home? What would you do if you lost everything? If you were in this situation, no matter where you got placed, you're told now to go to Nineveh, where are you going to go first? Uh, Did he go to Jerusalem? Remember when he was in the fish? He talks about making a vow. He also talks about fulfilling a vow to God and and sacrificing. Where did they sacrifice? Jews could only sacrifice legally at the temple. So, uh, was he, that's what you're laughing at, right? Was he in Jerusalem? Oh, there you go. Go to the nearest Walmart. Yes. <laughs> Who? That's a great question right there. Does Jonah even know where he is spit out? We aren't told. What would it be like? I sort of sat um, earlier this week, just thinking about this, what would I have done? I mean, I've made a vow to God. Would I go to Jerusalem and fulfill the vow first? I think I probably would. But even to do that, to, to do a sacrifice, you got to have an animal. He hasn't probably got any money. He's got enough. I mean, the clothes on his back, what's left of them after being inside of a fish for, for that period of time. Did he go to Jerusalem? Um, did God call him and tell him to go right that moment from the beach? Even in the Hebrew, it doesn't tell us exactly, even in the formation of the, the Hebrew language there, it does not indicate or give us any indication of when this is taking place. We just basically assume, and I, I always did for years, I just assumed, well, he got spit out and just started walking. But then I didn't realize he has lost everything. You know, can he stop at McDonald's? <laughs> well, if you can't go to Walmart, he can't go to McDonald's. You know, what is going on? What's happening to him? we do not know and it's it's was puzzling to me I would really like to know what happened to him is what time of is is there a period of time between when he gets spit out is it months some commentators have said that this actually happened a couple of years later well what have you got to base that on nothing it's just a hypothesis I mean it's just as valid as saying that he got up and went right then we aren't told anything God does not give us that detail so, I don't know, but it's a fascinating thing. We do, though, we do know that he made a vow to go to the temple to sacrifice. Now, I'll tell you something else. In Nineveh, until just recently, there was a, uh, a shrine there called the Tomb of Jonah. And according to tradition, Jonah never left Nineveh that he died in Nineveh. He never went back to Israel. Now there's no record of this whatsoever. This is tradition that has been carried on for centuries. Um, I don't even know how far back. I couldn't even trace it um, how far back it goes. I couldn't find a a real beginning to it. But I do know that there's a shrine there called the tomb of Joseph. Um, Now as we know if if you go to Israel there's a lot of tombs of people like just outside of Jerusalem um, between the temple and the Mount of Olives there is a shrine called the Tomb of Absalom, and tourists will take you right there. It's this beautiful tomb structure. It's a big, uh, um, not very large, actually. It's pretty tall. It's got like a cone shape or almost like a a Hershey kiss shape to the top of it. Um, I don't know why that sticks in my mind. I'm thinking, I guess, about chocolate. I have no idea, but that's the what, uh, you could probably think of an easier geometric way of saying that. What would you say, a cone or something? But I thought of a Hershey Kiss. And it looks just like that on this like square building um, that's all sealed up. And they say that's the tomb of Absalom. Well, that's not the tomb of Absalom. You know, he's not there. If you remember how Absalom, David's son, um, he was killed. They threw him, and he wasn't in Jerusalem was in a different city altogether. It was miles from there, uh, over 30 miles away, and they just piled stones on top of his body. Um, So what is that tomb of Absalom? Well, actually, this is going to be a chapter in my next book, (laughs) because it, it appears that this is actually very likely the tomb of Herod Agrippa um, that cone thing is actually a giveaway for it. But anyway, if you go to these places, there's, these are not the real tombs for these things. There's a lot of, like if you go to the tomb of David, I think I've talked about this before. If you go to the tomb of David, if you go on a tour in Jerusalem, they'll take you over on, um, on Mount Zion, which is not... Where the city of David was, it's the next mountain over, and they say that this is uh, this big, gigantic, beautiful building. And oh man, the ornate decorations and stuff inside there—gorgeous! That's not David's tomb. That building only originated after the uh, fall of Jerusalem. As far back as I could trace it, it only goes back to about 300 AD. David died a little bit before that, around a thousand, you know, around 900, maybe 980 BC. So we don't know where he was. We don't know where he ended up. We're not really told this. God doesn't give us these details. But I want you to see something here with that passage that we just read and going back to the other one. Look, I'm going to go back to chapter 1 for a second and look what God commanded Jonah originally to do. It says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Now, when we talked about this before, we talked about you know, going to Nineveh, and then about how evil, I explained in that lesson, sort of vividly, uh, about how evil these people were. Um, and it says here that the evil has come up before God. In other words, the day of judgment has come. So Jonah is being told here at this point, go tell them I'm going to destroy the city, right? Isn't that what you see here? Um, call out against the city, their evils come up before me. That's not what he says this time look carefully I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you have it side by side so you can see this arise go to Nineveh that great city well wow, so far it's correct same thing and call out against it yeah but now look what happens the message that I tell you here there's definite tones of condemnation in chapter 1 verse 2 chapter 3 verse 2 It doesn't have the condemnation it says the message that I give you and we already know how the story ends Nineveh has a revival but you see what's fascinating here here it's condemnation here there's hope now Nineveh and and Jonah is you know getting both these calls but now this is what he's getting I want to show you something else about this this is important Um, Do you see, as God is telling, this is the message that we got, this is what God told him to do. Do you see that there's not much difference between this one and this one in comparing with Jonah? Here, God, this is when he was still walking close with God, he was still the prophet of God, and he says, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evils come against me. Now, he has totally disobeyed God. As As a representative of God, as a prophet of God, he has done just the absolute opposite of what God told him to do. Disobey, wow, did he disobey. And even when he went down to the boat, he kept his whole life and his ministry secret. They didn't know anything about him as he's taking that trip. Remember during the storm, they had to ask, who are you, what people are you? And then when they found out and he started finally preaching and then he finally prayed, they were like, oh my gosh. Here, it's a little different. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it the message I tell you. Do you notice that Jonah's not being punished? There's no rebuke from God. Wouldn't you expect that? We often think, at least I often think, if somebody's really doing something bad against God, and then God, okay, you know, a, a Christian totally turns his back on God, starts to go out and do other things, totally opposite of what he's supposed to do, comes back, And God just says, okay, this is what I want you to do now. I want you to go over and start witnessing to these people. Don't we sometimes sort of cower? Okay, when we do something like that, like, okay, God, are you you really angry with me? You know, I broke off the relationship, I I messed up the relationship. Um, What's going to happen? Go do this. Isn't that cool? As I told you, this is a book of salvation, this is a book of mercy. God is merciful. God does not come out and condemn him now. Of course, getting swallowed by a fish, you, can't, you know, that was one thing. But, I mean, how many things could God say to him? How many things might I have said if I was put in the authoritative position to like, boy, did you screw up? Now, this time, I don't want you seeing going down to Yapa. I don't want you to even think about going anywhere by water except to go fishing. You know, I, but no, we don't see that. God shows no rebuke. Gives him basically the same message. He gives them the same task, but there's no major rebuke. I think that's phenomenal. So where is he told to go? Well, let's go back now and take a look at this this, um, Assyrian Empire. So I've got a map here showing you this, and the Assyrian Empire is in this green. And as you take a look at this, they basically conquered a lot of the world, not all of the world. You can see Turkey, uh, today, present-day Turkey, Asia Minor, was hardly touched. Uh, he conquered the area of what was the Hittites. They were up in this area. The Greeks are still you know, doing their thing. Rome was now starting to form up and stuff. Um, but this was the, the, the nations. They conquered all of Egypt, the Assyrians did. They conquered it all. They conquered Babylon, all the land of Babylon, and the deserts down here. But they got the entire Fertile Crescent through here that they conquered. There's one place, though. I want you to notice the weird coloration of Judah. Part of Judah is like sort of a yellowish color, not green. And that's because they didn't really conquer um, Judah like they conquered all the other nations. And as we've said, they were very, very evil people. But that's the the size of their kingdom, where the location of their kingdom is. Now, Joppa would have been right over in this area here. Gath-Hepper, here's the Sea of Galilee, would be in around here. And Nineveh is way up here. So the roads to Nineveh went up this way and came down. They followed the Fertile Crescent up like that. You wouldn't find roads going this direction because you go across the desert. This way you have water as you go through. So he would have had this journey here, which is about 600 miles, if he was back at Jaffa, or around Jerusalem, if he was fulfilling the vow. Now, let's talk about... What this city is, because this city is the focal point of this story and the people who live in this city. God's not sending them out to other places in the Assyrian Empire. He's focusing on Nineveh. Now, I've talked a little bit about it, but tonight I want to show you more about this Nineveh. Nineveh was a great city. In Jonah 3, uh, 1 through 3, we see this again. In this passage here, it's talking about Nineveh being a great uh, city. And under Shalmanzer III, um, that's about 858 to 824 B.C. That was the period when, when Nineveh was uh, like at the extreme parts of its border. Um, afterwards then, they went out, the Assyrians went out, conquered about everything, and then what happened is they, the kingdom struggled for a little bit. Um, it's not that the borders shrunk, but the kingdom itself was struggling internally. Why, we're going to talk about that in a future lesson. Um, but after it struggled... There was a lot of civil problems going on in Nineveh. Then, under Tiglath-Polezer III, around 745-727, it regains its power. And then, after that, we have Sennacherib, who in 705-681 to 681 B.C., he comes up, and he is probably the greatest of all of the kings of Assyria, and he goes out and he conquers everybody. He was the most ruthless of all, um, and he destroys about basically everything. The Assyrians would destroy uh, Samaria. The Assyrians did. They just totally destroyed Jonah's country, Samaria, 30 years after Jonah. So Jonah, um, 722 B.C. is when uh, Samaria was conquered. Jonah as we talked about in lesson number one, Jonah was around you know, 750, uh, 760 B.C. in this area here um, is when he was. Thirty years after the story is written, um, Samaria is just destroyed, and the ten tribes that were making it up are scattered all over the world. So that's what's happening with them. And Assyria Syria uh, would attempt to destroy Jerusalem, they would attempt to destroy all of Judah. Sennacherib tried this. But he couldn't do it. He could not get Jerusalem to fall. Um, he did conquer all the other cities, including the massive city called Lachish, um, which was, it's one of the places I love to uh, just love to be there and see this because you can see the remains uh, at the um, tell at Lachish. You can see the Assyrian remains of their conquest. Um, it's really interesting and, and quite. Uh, when When you think about all the terror of what these Assyrians were doing to these Jews, it's remarkable. We talked again about that earlier in this thing. But even though the Assyrians were powerful and stuff, and they were very evil, as we've talked about before, they tried to conquer Jerusalem. But God loved Jerusalem, and Hezekiah was the king at that time. Hezekiah was a good king, if you recall. Matter of fact, it says in the Bible there, when it talks about Hezekiah, he was the best king and likened unto David. That's a pretty high compliment. But during this time, the Assyrians surround Jerusalem. They conquer Lachish, the strongest city of all in Judah. They conquered that city fairly easily. And then he turns his eyes, the king of Assyria, turns his eyes on Jerusalem. We pick up this story in 2 Kings chapter 19, 32-37. And what's going on here, the Assyrians, just to set the scene for you, Sennacherib, with his Assyrians, have just conquered the major powerful city of Lachish. I know most people never even heard of Lachish. Lachish was the strongest city in all of Judah. It was bigger than Jerusalem. Most people think well, wasn't Jerusalem the most powerful city? No, no, no. It was the capital. Lachish was a fortified city up on a high hill. It was almost impo- it was like the most difficult place to conquer. The Assyrians conquered it easily. Then, as Lachish is falling, Sennacherib sends generals and divisions and army troops and stuff, thousands of them, uh, over to Jerusalem. And they totally surround Jerusalem. And during this time, he sends a message to the king as Jerusalem is surrounded that we are going to surrender because we're going to destroy you. We just took out Lachish with no problem. We're going to take you out. If you want, surrender now. You can, we'll spare your lives. If not, we're going to do what we did to them. And we crucified them. We tortured them, et cetera, et cetera. We will do the same to you. In 2 Kings it says, Therefore, well, Hezekiah goes to Isaiah the prophet, they go to the temple and they pray. This is God's response. Therefore, thus thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. It's interesting because siege mount, that's what you see at Lachish. There are five siege mounds still there to this day showing how the Assyrians brought their battering rams and siege equipment up to the top of the city on top of this hill remarkable. It's still there. By the way that he came, the same he shall return. He shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose, it's talking about the people in Jerusalem, when they rose in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. And he was, and as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, Adrammelech and Sharezer, his son, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Eshardadon, his son, reigned in his place. So, this shows you what happens Jerusalem, Jonah's already gone, but this was the conquest of taking over and conquering. But isn't it cool that God spared the city? Now, I can't answer the question, why didn't God spare Lachish? I have no idea. And there were other Jewish cities that were conquered. But God preserved Hezekiah, Isaiah, who were both in that city, and not one arrow was shot into it. Now, some people, I think I might have told some of you this before, some people have questioned, well, this can't possibly be true the army, 185,000 people dying overnight like that? Well, the thing is, if you go to Jerusalem, or if you go to Chicago, or if you go to London, there are three uh, clay pillars. Um, They stand about, oh, a little over a meter meter tall. They're like six-sided, and they have writing on them. And on these things, it talks about, it's called Sennacherib's Prism, and on this, it actually talks about this battle and how Sennacherib could not conquer Jerusalem said he surrounded it, but his army was devastated. Scholars and archaeologists believe that it was probably something like bubonic plague or meningitis or something, but it wiped out his entire army overnight, and he ended up going back home. And just as the Bible says, he was killed by his sons. It's exactly as the Bible says. The archaeology is exact on here. But that's the same place. But I want you to see that he goes back to Nineveh. That was the capital. And so we're that was the capital of the city. Now, Jonah 3, verse 3 says, so Jonah arose, a little bit different than the last time now, he arose and went to Nineveh, <laughs> uh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. Now, as I've told you, critics of the Bible really love Jonah, sarcastically, because they find all sorts of reasons not to believe in God, they say, found in this book. This book is so full of myths and fairy tale stories, they say, that, that Nineveh was not this big. This says that Nineveh, exceedingly great city, all right, so it's a big city, but three days' journey to go across it from one side to the other? See, they say, they have said for, for centuries, no, that, there's no way, as a matter of fact, For hundreds of years, critics of the Bible said there never was a Nineveh, even though I just showed you in 2 Kings, the passage here specifically naming Nineveh. You know, Jonah talks about it, but a lot of people don't believe Jonah anyway, but Kings has it. The book of Chronicles has it. There's a lot of mentioning of Nineveh in the city. It even goes back, uh, they talk about it in some of the other Old Testament books. But critics will often say, no, Nineveh never existed. It was never, a, even if it did, it couldn't have been a big city. But they say there's never been found any evidence for this. And that's what used to be taught in all universities, you couldn't find Nineveh. Because if you went anywhere around in, uh, along the, uh, the rivers and looking around in um, what is today, present-day Iraq, for this city, you wouldn't find it. Because God destroyed it. And it was buried by sand then as a curse of God. And what ends up happening is it is totally submerged in sand. That's what happened to it. So, but the Bible says it's a large city. But like I say, some critics say, no, it never even was a city. It's a mythical city. Until archaeologists in the 1840s were digging and they found Nineveh. They found it and it is an extremely massive city as they started digging this thing out, they were amazed at how much was there. And it has been dug, like I say, they've done so many excavations, 1840 to 1960s, and then just after the Gulf War, this, they start, archaeologists went back in there and started digging again. Because of ISIS, the rise of ISIS, all archaeologists have left that city, and what's going on there is terrible. Um, it's, it's, very, it's right across the river from Mosul, you hear about Mosul all the time on the news. Nineveh was on the opposite side of the river. I'll show you some pictures here as we go through, but it was an ancient city. Uh, this is one archaeologist's rendition of what Nineveh looked like um, during the time of Jonah. That it was—you can see there's a river that actually flowed through the city, but massive buildings. Matter of fact, some archaeologists now have argued and actually have presented a pretty strong case about one of the seventh, um, seven ancient wonders of the world. Do you remember hearing about the Hanging Gardens of Babylon? It seems that the Hanging Gardens very possibly was not in Babylon, was in Nineveh. Um, there's never been a trace in ancient Babylon found of anything dealing with the, uh, with the Hanging Gardens. Yet, Nineveh, they have found all sorts of evidence that there was some type of Hanging Garden there. Um, so some people think we just got the city wrong. Um, and stuff like that. But anyway, this was a huge city. Here, this is out of the English uh, Standard Version Study Bible. They have this map. And this gives you an idea of the city proper in the center. If you look at this, you can see the Tigris Rivers going along the side. On, Nineveh sits on the east side. On the west side is the modern city of Mosul. But this city, it had many gates as you can see going around. The gates have all been excavated out. They have found an arsenal of Eshardon. He was one of the the kings. Down in this uh, portion down here on the southeastern section of Nineveh, there was a shrine called the Tomb of Jonah that they have found. Um, whether that's really true, I don't know if Jonah was there. But anyway, we know Jonah was in the city, but whether, as I talked about earlier, whether it was buried there or not, we don't know. The palaces are up here. There was a library here that was discovered just recently. They have found so many things here uh, right after the Gulf War. So many phenomenal discoveries. And it is a huge city. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, that does not look like that takes three days to walk across. Well, okay. First of all, we've already killed the critics where they said that Nineveh didn't exist. Nineveh does exist. And people now then will take a look at this, and there's no way the Bible can be correct here that it takes three days to go across the city. I want you to think about Chicago, that Totland town. Chicago proper, the city limits of Chicago. How many of you have flown into Chicago? O'Harefield or Midway Airport? How many of you? Okay, almost everybody has done that. As you fly in, how big does Chicago look? Oh, like that. <laughs> the city itself. But what's all around Chicago? The suburbs. the suburbs. Now, I grew up south side of Chicago. And I don't know if anybody else here is from the south side of Chicago or north side or west side or whatever. Definitely not the east side because <laughs> it's the lake. But if, if you are in the suburbs, as you drive in, You can't tell where one suburb ends. If there's no sign, you can't tell where one suburb ends and another one begins. It's just houses, city stores, the whole way, all the way across. But don't we generally say Chicago? And many times that's representing the suburbs. I remember when I was in high school, I went down to visit my brother in the Bahamas. It was Easter Sunday. And at this huge church, it was a big tent a gathering on Easter. There was a whole pile of churches, about 12 or 14 churches got together. It was quite a few thousand uh, people all in attendance there. And I was sitting there with my my brother, and um, they said, is there, um, the pastor, one of the pastors of the churches got up, with the guy who was re- leading the uh, Easter service got up and said, uh, do we have any visitors from another island or some other place here? And my brother was like, you're a visitor, put your hand up. And I go, I'm going to put my hand up in front of all these people, put your hand up. <laughs> I don't want to put my, you know, some people are saying I'm from Eleuthera, you know, it's another island. I'm from Exuma, I'm from great uh, Abaco, I'm from Manowar Key. and they're raising hands and stuff like this. Somebody would raise their hand like, I'm from Miami, ooh, they came across, you know, I'm from New Jersey, wow, and, and he kept, would you put your hand, we're having this little argument there, and finally he says, just put your hand up, so I put my hand up, and I was sitting a little bit further back, and they said, oh, see a, see a hand back there, and um, uh, where are you from? And I, I said, Chicago. Now, I'm not from Chicago. I was from Crete. But he couldn't hear me. So he made me stand up. So I had to stand up. This is so goofy. So I stand up. And he says, where are you from? We couldn't hear you. Because there's no microphone. You're really just shouting in this tent. And I said, I'm from Chicago. And he goes, Chicago. You're from Chicago. And he says, I have friends there maybe you know them <laughs> i always thought that was funny <laughs> but when you consider the suburbs of this of chicago it's gigantic the thing is nineveh was the same way the same way let me show you some other things here nineveh is located on a tell. it's a rise like a, a hill Uh, It's about 50 feet above the surrounding plain, the city proper now I'm speaking of, around this. And it's just the opposite of Mosul in Iraq. Um, Here is a satellite. This is Google Earth. I just pulled this up on Google and took a thing here. And you can see the ancient, proper city of Nineveh. But do you see what's all out here? All around? Now today we've got modern roads and stuff there. So you see all these things around here. This city was gigantic. It was a huge city. Uh, Nineveh is described also. God gives us another thing. At the end of this book, in chapter 4, verse 11, he tells us something fascinating. That great city. He's talking about Nineveh. That great city with more than 120,000 people who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle. That's sort of like how the book ends just hanging like that. By the way, what does that mean? I'll tell you that when we get there. (laughs) But critics, I have read many critics who say, oh, this is obviously a misprint. There's no way 120,000 people in an ancient city. That's too many. That's probably supposed to be like 120 or maybe 1,200. But 120,000 people, no way. Well, (sighs) archaeologists are saying, Actually, yes way. It is quite possible and that they had a population of over 120,000. Actually, most scholars now believe, archaeologists and stuff believe this number is not accurate because it's too small. The suburbs went, they believe, for over 30 miles in circumference, 30 miles across. How many days would that take a walk? Around three days on an average thing. That's what it shows. And ancient, uh, or um, some satellite shots and stuff that they have like that shows that too. Um, here is, this is from Popular Archaeology Magazine, Volume 3. This is from June 2011. And it was an excavation, an article about an excavation going on at Nineveh. And it says this In ancient times, it was the capital of the great Assyrian Empire, a city of more than 100,000 100, people. This thing was huge. So this is, and it's not a Christian publication. This is showing the size of this city, and they're estimating over 100,000 people there. Um, here's another picture of this. This is an actual satellite picture that archaeologists were using. This is pretty old because now this had been excavated out somewhat. But again, we're seeing so many. And by looking at pictures like this, what was fascinating about this in this magazine is talking about how these features here, and they showed other features around that I couldn't really distinguish, but to an archaeologist, a trained eye, they could see that these were ancient places where people lived. Yeah, this was the city proper, but there were, for about 30 miles around, there were others. And they have done all sorts of excavation. Look what they've dug out. Isn't this beautiful? This is one of the gate systems to go into that city. And this was dug out. Right after the Gulf War, you can see how high the sand was over here, and they're digging it out. Actually, this entire thing in the 1840s, this entire thing was under sand. It was invisible. People actually, when they discovered it, um, and even when, I think it was Charles Warren went there and was uh, standing on top, it was just a pile of sand. And they were thinking, this is it. And as they just started back in the 1840s, they didn't know how to do digs. They just started digging holes, and they started finding artifacts. And they knew then they were on top of Nineveh. And they were just amazed because it was just sand. You couldn't see any buildings. So they started carting off all the sand, and these things started appearing. This one, um, here's, here's another one, showing some phenomenal things. But if you've, I'll um, we'll show you some more too before I get into that. Here's an inner wall. This wall, they estimate, was 100 feet high and three chariots wide. This was a huge city. You can see in here they haven't even began to excavate. Here's one of the older holes. You can see they just dig holes. You can always tell old things. It just went straight down in 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 shafts going down like that. Um, Now they grid things out, but they start digging. Nova did a thing on this uh, about maybe oh five years ago. Nova had a special on Nineveh, um, the excavations being done since the Gulf War. It was phenomenal. Beautiful things as, as they're digging out. They're finding reliefs and, and panels and libraries of books. Um, actually, they're written not in book form like you think. It's on clay prisms that they would inscribe in clay and then bake it, and you got your, your book that way. But that's what they were finding in libraries and stuff, all sorts of things here as so they kept digging it out and still digging and pulling things out. You can see that uh, the wall um, is big stone, but then there's this paneling that they put on the walls, uh, which is not unusual to have that kind of paneling going around. Look at that, the massive walls that they pulled away the sand, what was buried in the sand. The city ended up being cursed by God. And wow, it is phenomenal that it was preserved like this. But since ISIS has come, ISIS, and if you followed this in the news, ISIS is destroying all this stuff. Unfortunately, some of the images I've just showed you are no longer there. For instance, look at this picture. This is ISIS destroying one of the gates I just showed you. Taking equipment, they're knocking everything down, they're destroying all signs of ancient... um, Ancient Nineveh, ancient Assyria. In Syria, they've done the same thing. They've destroyed temples and stuff that has stood for centuries. They've blown them up. Uh, why ISIS does the things it does, I do not know, but that's what's going on. And you can see I pulled this off of a, I hope I don't get the government chasing after me while I was looking like on an Al-Qa'zara website or something. But I wanted to show you some pictures of this. But oh my gosh, what was so beautiful, like this image here, so beautiful. That's it. And they've just, they're destroying it. The world community is in, in just screaming, in uproar over this destruction of antiquity. But ISIS doesn't care. And who's going to go over and stop them? So they are right now destroying Nineveh. They're breaking every single thing down. Uh, the, the mosque of Jonah that was there, Jonah's tomb, they've blown that up. That was one of the first things to go. They blew that up because that has a tie to the Bible, so they blew that thing up. Whether it even had its body in there or not, I don't know. But... It's just terrible that they're destroying everything they can possibly destroy where once before the city was massive had tall buildings and stuff now these buildings are being destroyed this is uh, an image of one of the palaces um sennacherib's palace and what it possibly looked like in its day uh luckily many of the reliefs the walls of the palace i showed you some of these with torture things on them before but the walls of this palace have been preserved and moved to different museums. Israel has quite a few of these, um, but they've been moved also into Turkey and other places. But ISIS is determined to destroy all these. It's really sick. Now, Nineveh was destroyed. I mean, if you already we already know the story how this ends in Jonah, the people repent. But right after Jonah, within uh, thirty years of Jonah, remember, Nineveh comes back and destroys Samaria. Um, so they <laughs> they unrepent. They cast away God after a while, not long after this whole thing happened. They had a quick revival it seems like, turned to God and then the king died and another king comes along and he says, hey, forget this monotheistic society, let's go back to polytheistic is what happens. And Nineveh was then destroyed. But what's really cool is the book of Nahum, Nahum actually writes about the destruction coming of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was standing when this happened. When, when Nahum was making this prediction, Nineveh is still there. Uh, this is when Nahum was, was written somewhere around 640, 630 B.C. And uh, we know that because of descriptions that he talks about. He talks about the city of Thebes in Egypt being destroyed. We know when that happened. So we know it was after Thebes, but it was before Nineveh fell. So we can get a time frame roughly of when Nahum wrote the prophecy about this. And look, look what it says. Look what Nahum prophesied before Now, think about this. Nineveh was the biggest city in the world. How in the world could anybody ever conquer it? How would it ever be totally destroyed? So Nahum is like saying, hey, that big city is going to be gone. I'm sure people thought he was nuts. But look what he writes in Nahum 1.8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This is talking about the destruction of Nineveh. But it mentions specifically a flood. Going back to um, a a source on history here having to do with the fall of Nineveh, I'm going to read to you from, I haven't got my glasses on, but you'll see the quote at the end. This is from a book. I can't see the thing in my notes here. Um, Quote, the Babylonian army lay siege to Nineveh, but the walls of the city were too strong for battering rams. So they decided to try to starve the people out. A famous oracle had been given that Nineveh should never be taken until the river became its Enemy. After a three month siege, rain fell in such abundance that the waters of the Tigris inundated part of the city and overturned one of its walls for a distance of 20 stades. And that's from the rise and fall of uh, Syria, um, a book, and it talks about how it fell. It was water that took it out. What did Nahum say was going to do it? A flood. How did God destroy the city and let the enemy in? A flood. Isn't that fascinating? And it was written before Nineveh fell. It was predicted that this was going to happen. Nahum 3.3, look what else it says. Horsemen charging, flashing swords and glittering spears, hosts of slain, heaps of uh, corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. Nahum is predicting through God that when Nineveh falls, the bodies will not even be buried. Actually, it took months for the Babylonians to kill everybody in the city. And it says it was terrible fighting, house to house, and when it fell, they just left the bodies. Nahum is saying that's what's going to happen. The bodies are just going to be left, they're not even going to be buried. Going back to Popular Archaeology, Volume 3, June 2011, that same article I was reading before quote, many unburied skeletons were found, evidencing violent deaths and attesting to the final battle and the siege of Nineveh that destroyed the city and soon brought an end to the Assyrian Empire. It's exactly what God predicted. Isn't that cool? But you gotta think, back in the day when Nahum was writing this, as great as that city was, that population everything, there's no way people could believe that it would ever be destroyed. Yet it was destroyed exactly as Nahum predicted because God told him what to write, God told us what was gonna happen, it happened exactly. Then sandstorm covered the city and buried it for centuries. So, the empire began a slow decline, which soon developed into a rapid disintegration. After Nineveh fell, the empire really, and you can imagine why, it just collapsed so fast. By 612 B.C., Nineveh was conquered and destroyed by the Babylonians and the Medes. uh, Sennacherib's palace was again uh, burned. It was totally destroyed. Everything is done. The city is laid waste. And they didn't even bury the bodies. They just let the place rot. That's how it was done. In 609, the Assyrian Empire, the rulers of the world, were gone. The entire kingdom collapsed, and the Babylonians take over. Then it gets right into the time of Daniel. If you're in the time frame, because nabopolassar was the person who did that. That was Nebuchadnezzar's dad. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who conquered Jerusalem and captured Daniel and brought Daniel back. And Ezekiel also went back and, and stuff with that during that time. Uh, The prophet Jeremiah was living when that happened also. He was writing about it. But that's where we're at. So that's what we know about Nineveh, what ended up happening to it. So I thought that would be an interesting thing to do tonight. Since God is talking about the city, I wanted you to see what the city was like. I wanted you to see how the size of this city was and what Jonah is now going into, the capital of these evil people. But we know what's going to happen at the end. But... That's all we have time for tonight. We'll close with prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this time. And I just ask that, Lord, you just uh, just bless us all and keep us safe as we travel home tonight. I thank you for each person who's come. And, Lord, I just um, thank you so much for the loving God you are. And I thank you for not just Jonah, but the book of Nahum, that he actually prophesied all this happening before it actually took place. And how perfectly it fit in with the history as we what we see. So keep us safe, in Jesus' name, amen. hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give and help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you'd like to hear Michael live, you can check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org. And on that note, this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.